Book 3, Chapter 1 of A Class Book of Old Testament History by G.F. McClear. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Cliff Stone of Sydney, Australia. A Class Book of Old Testament History by G.F. McClear. Book 3. From the Settlement of the Israelites in Egypt to the Giving of the Law. Chapter 1. The Birth and Calling of Moses. Exodus chapters 1 through 6, B.C. 1706 to 1491. The district of Goshen, frontier, also called the land of Ramesses, Genesis 47 verse 11, where the Israelites were settled during the period of their sojourn in the land of the Pharaohs, was the most easterly borderland of Egypt. It was scarcely included within the boundaries of Egypt proper and was inhabited by a mixed population of Egyptians and foreigners. Exodus 12 verse 38 Eminently a pasture land and adapted to the rearing of flocks and herds, it included also a considerable portion of fruit-bearing soil, which owed its fertility to the overflowing of the Nile, called by the Egyptians Harpimu, the genius of the waters, by the Israelites Sihor or Shihor, the black. Isaiah 23 verse 3, Jeremiah 2 verse 18. Touching on the west, the green valley of this wondrous river, and stretching onwards to the yellow sands of the Arabian desert immediately south of Palestine, it was then, as it has always been, the most productive part of Egypt, yielding luxuriant crops of wheat and millet, and abounding in cucumbers and melons, gourds and beans, and other vegetable growths. Numbers 11 verse 5 Sacred history does not reveal to us many particulars respecting the early portion of the period during which the sons of Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham. We know that they were fruitful and multiplied and waxed exceeding mighty, so that when the time came for them to go forth from Egypt, they could scarcely have numbered less than two million souls. We need not, however, suppose that these were all the direct descendants of the seventy immediate relatives of Jacob. When that patriarch and his sons went down into Egypt, they would naturally take with them not only their flocks and herds, but their men-servants and maid-servants. Genesis 45 verses 10 and 11 Of the number of these we can form some calculation by remembering the 318 trained servants who accompanied Abraham at the rescue of Lot, Genesis 14 verse 14. The great store of servants possessed by Isaac, Genesis 26 verses 13 and 14, two-thirds at least of whom passed into the possession of Jacob and must be added to the two hosts which he bought from Mesopotamia, Genesis 32 verses 7 and 8. But even thus their increase was marvellous and must be ascribed to the direct superintending hand of God. The effect, however, of their stay was perceptible in other respects. They not only increased in numbers, but became acquainted with many arts and sciences, and thus fitted for their future national existence. One portion, indeed, of the nation seems to have retained its pastoral habits, even to the end. The descendants of Reuben, Gad and Manasseh, Numbers 32 verse 1, probably tended their large flocks and herds on the eastern border of Goshen, but others settled in the cities and villages on the confines of the land of Goshen, and not only adopted more generally agricultural pursuits, Deuteronomy 11 verse 10, but became acquainted with many useful arts, with writing, 
the working of precious and common metals, the grinding and engraving of precious stones, with carpentry, byssus weaving, and pottery. First Chronicles 4, verse 14, 21, and 23. With fishing, gardening, Numbers 11, verse 5, and artificial irrigation, Deuteronomy 11, verse 10. On the other hand, they could not fail to become acquainted with forms of religious worship hitherto utterly unknown to them. Now, for the first time, could they witness the gorgeous and mysterious ceremonies that attended the worship of Ra, the sun god, or of Isis and Osiris. Now, for the first time, they might behold the incense burnt three times every day, and the solemn sacrifice offered once a month to the sacred black calf Nevis at On, Heliopolis, or to his rival, the bull, Apis, at Memphis. Now they saw, as they could scarcely have seen elsewhere, the adoration of the creature rather than the creator carried to its furthest point, and divine honours paid not only to the mighty pharaoh, the child, the representative of the sun god, but to almost everything in heaven above, and the earth beneath, and the waters under the earth, to the crocodile and the hawk, the cat and the dog, the hippopotamus and the serpent. That the simple patriarchal faith of the descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob would suffer from contact with such diverse forms of idolatry might naturally be expected. The worship of the sacred calf exercised over them a peculiar fascination. Your fathers worshipped other gods in Egypt, says Joshua afterwards. Joshua 24 verse 14. They forsook not the idols of Egypt, is the accusation of Ezekiel. Ezekiel 20 verse 7 and 8, 23 verse 3. But an important event exercised a still greater influence on their social and religious condition. A change took place in the reigning dynasty. There arose a new king over Egypt. Exodus 1 verse 8, Acts 7 verse 18, that knew not Joseph, who regarded with no friendly feelings the strange community with alien rites and traditions settled on the eastern outskirts of his realm. He viewed with alarm their rapid increase and dreaded lest, in the event of a war, instead of guarding his kingdom against, they might join the enemies of Egypt, the roving tribes of the east, the terror of the inhabitants of the Nile, and fight against his own people and effect their escape from the land. Accordingly, he determined to reduce them to the condition of public serfs or slaves, and in order to crush their free and independent spirit, set taskmasters over them and employed them in gigantic works, making bricks for his treasure cities, Pithom and Ramesses. Day after day, therefore, their lives were made bitter with hard bondage, while beneath the burning rainless sky, naked and in gangs they toiled under the lash in the quarry or in the brickfield. But this expedient did not produce the effects the monarch desired. The more they were afflicted, the more this strange people grew and multiplied and waxed exceeding mighty. Thereupon instructions were given to the Hebrew midwives to destroy, in some secret way, every Hebrew man-child. And when this too proved ineffectual, from the unwillingness of the midwives to obey so cruel a decree, an order was issued that every Hebrew boy should be flung into the waters of the Nile. What Abraham had seen in mystic vision was now fulfilled. Genesis 15 verse 12. A horror of great darkness had settled upon his descendants. Strangers in a strange land, they were suffering grievous affliction. They sighed by reason of their bondage, 
and their cry came up unto God. Exodus 2 verse 23 But it was at this juncture, when everything seemed at the worst, that the future deliverer of Israel was born. Amram, a man of the house of Levi, married Jochebed, a woman of the same tribe, and became the father of a daughter, Miriam, a son, Aaron, and a boy remarkable from his childhood for peculiar beauty. Exodus 2 verse 2, Acts 7 verse 20. For three months his mother succeeded in eluding the vigilance of Pharaoh's inquisitors and concealing her child. But at the close of that period, finding further concealment impossible, she constructed an ark or boat of papyrus stalks, and having protected it with pitch or bitumen, placed the child therein among the reeds of the Nile. There the mother left it, but Miriam the sister stood afar off to watch her brother's fate. As the ark floated with the stream, the daughter of Pharaoh, attended by her maidens, came down to bathe in the waters of the sacred river, and as she walked by the bank, her eye lit upon the basket, and she sent one of her attendants to fetch it. It was brought, and when opened, behold, the babe wept. Struck with compassion, the Egyptian princess, though she perceived it was one of the Hebrews' children, determined to rear it for her own. At this moment Miriam approached and asked permission to call a nurse for the child. Permission was given and Jochebed once more saw her boy restored to her with the command to rear it for its preserver. The child grew and after a while was brought to the princess and she, in memory of its preservation, named it Moses, or in its Egyptian form, Moshi, from Mo, water, and Ushi, saved. Exodus 2 and verse 10. The foundling of the Nile was now formally brought up as the adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter, and in conformity with his high position, received a suitable education. He became learned, St. Stephen tells us, Acts 7 verse 22, in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. In all therefore we may believe that the science of that day could teach him of arithmetic, writing, astronomy, medicine, and sacred symbolism. On the same authority, we further learn that Moses became mighty, not only in words, but also in deeds, Acts 7.22. What these deeds were is not known, but it is certain that the Hebrew youth was in a position to have achieved a splendid career. He might have enjoyed to the full the pleasures of the Egyptian court, Hebrews 11.25, and amassed much of its accumulated treasures. But the traditions, the hopes, the creed of his own nation had not, we may believe, been concealed from him by his mother. Hence, when he came to the age of forty, chancing to go forth from On or Memphis to the land of Goshen, he beheld one of his countrymen not only toiling amidst the shadeless brickfields, but suffering the bastinado from his Egyptian taskmaster. Filled with indignation, Moses looked this way and that way, and seeing no one by, slew the Egyptian and hid the corpse in the white sand of the desert. The next day, seeing two of the Hebrews quarrelling, he tried to act as arbiter between them. His good offices, however, were not only rejected by the one he decided to be in the wrong, but he discovered that the murder of the Egyptian was no secret. He imagined that his countrymen would have recognised in him a deliverer sent from the God of their fathers, but they did not. Before long, news of the murder reached the ears of Pharaoh, and Moses, perceiving that his life was no longer safe, fled from Goshen, in a southeasterly direction to the land of Midian, or the peninsula of Sinai in Arabia, peopled by the descendants of Abraham by Keturah. 
Genesis 25, verse 2. He was sitting on a well in Midian when he perceived the approach of the seven daughters of Jethro, the chief and priest of that country, to draw water for their flocks. They were in the act of filling the troughs when certain Arabian shepherds rudely tried to drive them away. Thereupon, with the same zeal he had shown in behalf of his own countrymen, Moses intervened and defended the maidens against the intruders. Their unusually early return prompted the inquiries of their father and led to his introduction to the chivalrous stranger. Moses was contented to dwell with the Midianitish chief and kept his flocks and afterward married his daughter Zipporah, by whom he became the father of two sons, Gershom, stranger, and Eliezer, God is my help. And here, amidst the granite precipices and silent valleys of Horeb, in quiet and seclusion, forty years of his life passed away. Acts 7, verse 30. Here, as nowhere else, he could commune alone with God, and know himself, and learn the lessons of patience and self-control and dependence on the unseen, while the daily duties of his shepherd life made him acquainted with every path and track and fountain in a region, which he was afterwards to revisit under such different circumstances. Meanwhile, though there was a change of ruler, the lot of the Israelites experienced no alteration. Still they toiled in cruel bondage, still their cry went up to the God of their fathers. At length, the time drew near when the promise made to Abraham was to be fulfilled. The oppressing nation judged and the people delivered. Genesis 15 verse 14 One day, Moses was leading the flocks of Jethro some distance from the spots where he seems to have usually tended them to the back of the wilderness and came to the mountain of God, even to Horeb, when a marvellous sight arrested his attention. He looked and behold, before him, burning with fire, was a bush of wild acacia, the shaggy thorn bush of the desert. But though enveloped in flames, it was not consumed. It remained unsinged and uninjured by the fiery element which played around it. Astonished at the prodigy, Moses determined to draw near and ascertain the cause of this great sight. And as he approached, lo, a voice, the voice of God, called unto him out of the midst of the bush, saying, Moses, Moses. The awestruck shepherd answered the voice and then was directed to draw not nearer but take his shoes from off his feet for the place on which he stood was holy ground. Moses complied and hiding his face for he dared not look upon God listened while the Lord spake again assuring him that he was the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He had not been unmindful of the sufferings of his people in Egypt. He had seen their affliction. He had heard their cry. He had come down to deliver them from their oppressors and to bring them up into a land flowing with milk and honey. And he had appointed no other than Moses himself to be their deliverer and bring them forth from the land of Egypt. Filled with awe and misgiving, Moses at first sought in every way to excuse himself from the tremendous commission. Who am I, said he, that I should go unto Pharaoh, and that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt. I will be with thee, was the reply. But who was this I? When Moses went to the children of Israel, and assured them of the commission he had received, what was the name he was to announce to them as his authority? Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, replied the Almighty, 
I am Jehovah, the Eternal, the Self-Existent, hath sent me unto you. Exodus 3 and verse 14. But this did not satisfy Moses. What outward and visible assurance could he give the people of his divine commission? This difficulty was also met. The Lord invested him with a threefold miraculous power, whereby to attest his authority alike before the people and before Pharaoh. First, he should cast his staff, his shepherd's crook, upon the ground, and it would become a serpent, and on taking the creature by the tail, it would resume its former state. Then he should put his hand into his bosom, and it would become leprous, but on returning it to his bosom would become as his other flesh. Thirdly, if they believed neither the first nor the second sign, he was to take the water of the sacred Nile and pour it upon the dry land, and it should become blood. But now Moses pleaded another obstacle. He was not eloquent. He was of a slow speech and a slow tongue. No words had he wherewith to bend the awful Pharaoh on his throne. Who hath made man's mouth, was the reply. Who maketh the dumb, the deaf, the blind? Have not I the Lord? Go, and I will be with thy mouth. I will teach thee what thou shalt say. Still Moses made another effort to roll off from himself the awful responsibility of the commission. O my Lord, he cried, send, I pray thee, by the hand thou shouldest send. This last proof of distrust provoked even the Lord to anger, but it was the anger of love, the love that remembers mercy and sustains the weak. The Lord had already provided a spokesman. Aaron, his brother, was at this moment on his way to meet him and he was known to be able to speak well. Together, like the apostles afterwards, the brothers should go in before Pharaoh, Aaron should be instead of a mouth, and Moses should be to him instead of God, and with his rod he should perform the prescribed signs. Then at last his timidity was removed. He consented to go, and the object of the vision of the burning bush was thus far attained. Exodus 4 verses 1 to 17 End of Book 3, Chapter 1 Recorded by Cliff Stone of Sydney, Australia